Hello, paranormalists, fringe dwellers, my fellow travelers on the road to and from the strange and unusual. Welcome to Paranormal Tower. Sit down, relax, get comfortable. I have something to tell you. Hello, everyone. This is Kathy Kelly, and I'm coming to you from Paranormal Tower and Asbury Park's historic downtown district. This week, we're going to talk to you a little bit about special haunted places, places that across the globe, people have universally had experiences in. And we decided this week that we would choose hospitals. Hospitals are frightening places because unlike most other places, they truly are the unknown. We enter them at our weakest and most vulnerable. And they're places of death, fear, pain, joy, hope, life, all human emotions. They are antiseptic, one hopes, and yet profoundly human. They're cold and indifferent and warm and compassionate. Hospitals are terrifying because in many cases, they are the place that witnesses our beginning and our end. And no matter when you are in there, they teach you that you are not the only person experiencing your experience. Hospitals remind us that while our lives are precious, our experiences are far from unique. Stories of spirits lost in the corridors of hospitals are rampant. Speak to any nurse who has worked an overnight and she or he will tell you that the dead do indeed walk, even if only for a little while. Souls who left sooner than expected, gunshot victims, car accident fatalities, mothers who only heard one cry of their children, fathers who waited just a little too long to have that heart checked out. People are rarely ready to go, and rarely do they recognize the end of their story when it comes. Some of the stories are famous. Some hospitals, mainly those now defunct, like Waverly Hills or Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, carry on in the public consciousness because of their ghosts. Others keep their spirits quiet while they continue to do the work of mercy and healing. Now, my first hospital is actually anonymous because it's still operational. This first story comes from a Reddit thread about ghostly experiences in hospitals and was just too creepy not to share. It takes place in a hospital in California. I had my first weird, creepy hospital ghost instance that I have no reasonable explanation for. I don't even necessarily believe in an afterlife or given it much thought. I'm pretty sure when we die, it's just like being out for surgery. Anyways, I work on a busy surgical floor and do two 12-hour days, then two nights off for four. During my day shift, I had a patient who was only in his early 50s, but had terminal cancer and was in extreme pain, as it was all throughout his bones. He decided to undergo physician-assisted suicide and asked that I be in attendance. The doctor came and performed the procedure, Sorry, not sure of a respectful way to label it. On my second day shift. The next night I came in for my shift and I had a new patient that was a 45-year-old man who had just had a small bowel resection staying in that room. And he got back from surgery that morning. It was totally clear, walking around, okay. And it was only taking trauma set for pain. He was completely oriented and not confused whatsoever. Anyways, around 3 a.m., 
It comes around and he starts ringing his bell and I go to his room and he asks me why this other patient keeps coming into his room and telling him to leave. He seems genuinely freaked out and a little bit annoyed, so I asked him to describe the patient and he did. And I couldn't really think of any patients on our floor that fit the profile. This entire time our care aide was sitting outside his room charting on her mobile workstation. She just happened to be parked near his room. I asked if she saw anyone and she said no. So I started looking into all the rooms, but everyone was asleep. I told the guy, I'm not sure who it was, but if you bothered him again, to ring right away and let one of us know. 45 minutes later, buddy rings again, same thing. I look all around, couldn't see anyone, and the carried was still there, and she said no one had been in and out that she saw. I asked for a description again, and this time I wrote it down as I was going to tell security. And as he's describing this guy, he mentions his fish tattoo on the forearm. And I think, weird, the guy in here before who died had a tattoo like that on his forearm. And then I told it to the carry. Sorry, I'm oblivious. Clearly, they haven't been even entertained the fact that this could be the guy who passed. She was the one who mentioned that it sounded like the guy who died. And I got freaked out. And then we were both really creeped out after that. I just told the guy to go back to bed and that we were dealing with it in the hallway. That is kind of creepy. Another story submitted to a nursing website had what is a common and kind of sweet story. On the unit I was working on, a lady coded. After running the code for a while, we were able to get her heart beating again. She sat up in bed and scanned the room of people and then asked, Where's my husband? He was just here a minute ago. Her heart stopped again and she could not be revived. Her husband, it turns out, had been dead for years. But not every story is scary or creepy. Some are compassionate and a continuation of the work that they did in life. Take St. Michael's in Toronto, for instance. Not only do they have dozens of sightings of their resident ghost, they actually include it on the website. This is because she was a beloved member of the community and is considered a helpmeet in the afterlife. Her name is Sister Vinny, and she was a pioneer in childbirth and care in their lifetime. She assisted in the birth and care of 60,000 children during her tenure as head of maternity and was known for being a tyrant when it came to care quality. But she was also known as a tireless champion for her patients and was known to love a good laugh now and then. In life, she ran a tight ship, but her her spirit is seen in more of a comforting role now. Still, the way she appears must be somewhat terrifying as first. She's known to appear in a patient's room, wearing a traditional white habit, but having no face. She carries an extra blanket or pillow. Now, I'm not sure that I can think of anything more terrifying than a faceless nun carrying a pillow when I'm helpless in bed. But her presence is seen as protective. Sister Vinny is far from the only spirit in that hospital, though the only one they know for sure the identity of. Several people have reported strange phenomena, including disembodied laughter and apparitions that they associate with Joe, a maintenance worker who died on the job, on the job he did in the morgue. And he is seen wandering in the back of the morgue and from time to time is known to laugh and turn computers on and off. Another strange thing that happens is that the elevators across from the nurse's station on the fourth floor open and close by themselves, as if called 
and then used. The nurses are so used to it now that it doesn't bother them. But it should be noted that most of them take the stairs when time permits. This week, Sean and I were not able to actually connect. However, both of us produced our podcast separately or our stories separately, and I'm stitching them together here. So you've listened to my stories. Now, ladies and gentlemen, here's Sean with his haunted hospital story. And hi, everyone. This is Sean, and I wanted to share two of the haunted hospitals that I'd like to talk about. Uh, the first one is actually local to me right now, uh, where I sit in San Antonio, Texas, and that is the San Antonio State Hospital. And the other being out in Trenton, New Jersey, back home, at, and that was the that is the Trenton Psychiatric Hospital in Trenton, New Jersey. So the first one that I'd like to talk about uh, being the San Antonio State Hospital. This is actually originally called the Southwestern Insane Asylum. And the state hospital right now is located on the southeast uh, portion of the, the city. And this place is, this. there's a lot of history. Uh, there's hardships, there's uh, corruption, there's even scandals, uh, and of course death that happens in these. I think a common theme with a lot of, if you do, anybody does any research on um, asylums or psychiatric hospitals, there is um, a big, big number of deaths that are associated with the hospitals. And uh, with this one, uh, the hospital is still in operation today uh, at the same location, but it is in uh, some newer buildings uh, than the original structures. And if you were to do a uh, a search for some images of what this place looked like um, and if you ever see any of the abandoned parts those are actually part of the uh, Bear County Juvenile Home for Boys so just to just so everyone knows knows that now this the San Antonio State Hospital or also known as SASH S-A-S-H um, this is a place that patients voluntarily were admitted to and I think we can also agree, and if we dig a little bit deeper, we can find out that maybe a lot of people did not have uh, that choice to make on their own and uh, were there without, uh, without wanting to. So this is actually one of San, Antonio, San Antonio's first uh, centers for the mentally ill and uh, dates back to 1892 just so you have a, a reference on that. And when it first first uh, started, I was in, on a big, big plot of land, uh, just about 640 acres, and it could hold up to 500 patients. But through the years, those numbers climbed. So even jumping to uh, 1912, uh, they, could adopt, they could accommodate up to uh, 1,100 patients. And then from there, in uh, 1926, uh, we find out that the hospital's capacity actually averaged over 2,000 people. So the numbers just keep growing and growing and growing. And by 1934, um, overcrowding, uh, five new buildings are put on the property, and um, 
yeah, by the close of 1939, uh, there's, we're looking at over 2,300 patients and there's not enough beds to accommodate them. So something that was done and it's not just a San Antonio thing. It, they took a lot of the, the patients from there and they spread them out over jails. Uh, for this one, they took over 700 people and put them in jails across the state. So it's, uh, it's quite an alarming amount uh, through time from when they started to uh, where they were just even in uh, going into 1940. But there are some reported deaths that have uh, little to no explanation as to why they really happened. And this ranges from teenagers, and this even ranges to the elderly. And uh, two young men in particular, one of them was known as Chino Garcia. I uh, was only 19 years old uh, when he was admitted into the San Antonio State Hospital. And he's, he was known for being a big guy. He, uh, he weighed in just under 200 pounds. Everyone was saying he was a smart kid. Um, he was actually attending the University of Texas um, right beforehand. But uh, when he went in, he wasn't physically ill. And somehow within three days, he later died. And there's no cause of death given uh, in his report or his obituary to what happened. So no one really knows. But then somebody else named Raul Chapa, um, he entered the hospital after having a nervous breakdown. And within 11 days, he was found dead uh, after being admitted to the institution. So these... It's it's some alarming, some alarming things that they that brought up with these that you know what exactly was going on in this place, and uh, even to the elderly, there was a a seventy five year old man, and he was uh, beaten, starved, and dehydrated so severely, he had actually lost uh, thirty pounds in only fifteen days. Just think of those numbers, thirty pounds. In only 15 days. So the mistreatment that was happening to patients time and time again shows in just these, these, um, these examples. And a lot of times, too, there was really no investigation or charges or anything uh, done to help these people after they you know, were being held uh, at the hospital. But for the, the ghosts, there's a lot, it's a lot of things that people have just felt or seen or um, picked up on just, just working there. And um, some of the, they kind of, they're more of a broad range of what people, um, people experience. But there are, there's no specific personalities that they equate these to. Maybe it could be these uh, these three that I've brought up. Uh, maybe their maybe their uh, their energy is still there. But 
People have reported unexplained voices that they hear when they're around and, you know, on their shift or when they're in there. Uh, there's also been footsteps that they've heard uh, in the halls, doors slamming, um, and even screams that they've heard. Uh, there's been cold spots uh, that, that people get this intense feeling that they're being watched, um, even when they're alone. And there's also rumors that claim that the grounds are littered with unmarked graves. So if I don't think that's too out of the ordinary for a, for a psychiatric hospital um, to have certain things like that. But there are essentially current former employees, everything of, of the nine, uh, and even residents of the, the hospital, um, that they've claimed that it just felt the place felt wrong and creepy. Um, and they were they were glad to be rid of it. But others, they claim that there's a distinct feeling of death in the air. And things that they've seen and heard, they just can't explain them. And just to give a, a couple a couple quick quotes, there's uh, there's people that are a current employee actually said, uh, I worked there. I've been there for eight years. It's a scary place. So kind of a uh, very, very narrowed, blunt, I'm getting to the point, <laughs> uh, quote from them. And uh, somebody actually also said, another current employee, that deaths, there's death around. We hear and see things. So again, could these, could these uh, things that they're seeing be past people? Could it be uh, Chino or uh, Raul walking around, even though they were there for such a short time? Um, you know, there's the list goes on and on, but there is an overall feeling to this place that that gives everybody their, you know, the the hair on the back of their neck to stand up and goosebumps all over their arms. So the next place I'd like to talk about is the Trenton Psychiatric Hospital. And this is a place that I've actually uh, driven past. If you've ever, ever gone to the Trenton Mercer Airport, uh, if you're taking a you know quick um, spirit air or um, flight out of uh, the very small airport, you probably have uh, gone past the hospital on your right. And it is, it's one of those places that looks like it was out of the movies. Uh, beautiful stonework, uh, you know, lush green grounds, and um, just one of these places that really strikes your eye. And this was actually, this the Trenton Psychiatric Hospital was originally uh, named the New Jersey State Lunatic Asylum. Um, and it, it has a long history of helping mentally ill patients and harming them. The hospital actually opened in 1848 and it had 86 patients at that point. But when we, within just over 50 years, 
and the turn of the century, the true, true person that enacted all the harm was a person named Dr. Henry Cotton. So 1907 is when he started, and Cotton was pretty, pretty intense with uh, his practices and definitely took advantage of his power. So Dr. Cotton actually thought infections cause mental illness. So he would test his theories. So he was known for removing patients' teeth, their limbs, or any body part with the slightest sign of infection instead of treating it in other ways. Um, now antibiotics were, were not in use and hundreds of patients actually died from these uh, post-surgical infections that Dr. Cotton had caused. So Cotton actually continued this practice uh, until 1924. Uh, he was brought up uh, by review by a peer board and uh, by 1925 the New Jersey State Senate they held an investigation and they thought that the doctor provided some cutting-edge treatment and actually approved of his work so he continued to kill his patients just under 30 years until 1930 when he finally retired but it didn't just stop with Dr. Cotton because the hospital staff actually continued his practices by removing teeth, limbs, and organs through the 1950s. Now, uh, to give you a number of just how the success rate of, uh, of what Cotton was trying to prevent against, uh, when he died in 1933, there was actually um, a, a review found his medical procedures that killed 45% of his patients. So pretty alarming, uh, heavy, uh, heavy thing that uh, when we look at the numbers like that, that people, uh, even over 50, over 50 years, there were patients that were um, patient after patient after patient having to go through from Dr. Cotton and the staff. So the ghost hunting we'll call it the paranormal investigating of of seeing what was was active in the Trenton Psychiatric Hospital has had a few people go in and there's been people that have have uh, seen a few things and a lot of people actually feel that Dr. Cotton's apparition uh, has been seen and that it is Dr. Cotton. Uh, there's, we have ghosts of patients that people see with missing limbs. Uh, there's disembodied voices uh, and even the sight of orbs. So a lot of, a lot of people they have uh, seen these things. They've not. They have not been photographed. They have not uh, had tangible evidence. Uh, so this is more eyewitness. 
Um, and then also with the disembodied voices, there's no real clear EVP uh, examples that way, but they are experiences that people have had. And then orbs that people have caught uh, before, you know, with their cameras and photographed and everything. Um, orbs can be a little bit of a tricky thing. You know, a lot of times these these places that uh, that are abandoned or, you know, decommissioned, uh, these are places that they actually um, can stir up a lot of dust. So orbs can be mistaken for that. But if you... If you're trying to tell the difference between dust and, uh, you know, an actual orb, uh, usually the ghost ghost orbs, they have a solid white or gray, even light blue, green, or pink color, so some kind of hue that way. Uh, a lot of times, if you can just see right through it, um, and it has some kind of texture, a lot of times it could be just, you know, pollen, dust, or even, uh, even a bug. But, yeah, the... Uh, the orbs and the disembodied voices are something that people uh, happen to see a lot of times. Now, the as for the ghosts of the patients, uh, people will see patients with their legs and arms uh, missing, and they've seen them uh, go from room to room, you know, entering, leaving, uh, and they fade away very quickly just within a few seconds but there's also been with dr cotton some a lot of people have said that dr cotton himself uh is still there because they've seen a man in a white doctor's coat uh walking down the corridor in the area outside his office so there's also people uh, that have felt cold spots, they felt, uh, you know, paranoid, they've had uneasy feelings and even fa phantom touches, but more so what we see a lot of with this is this eyewitness account of Dr. Cotton still being around and the patients still wandering the halls. And finally, ladies and gentlemen, while these stories may be very poignant and very touching, they're not very personal. And in this particular case, I actually do have a personal haunted hospital story. And this is mine. I think a lot of us have strange experiences, and particularly when it comes to times when we're either deeply hurt or feel like we're in danger or feel like we're alone. I myself have a haunted hospital experience, and I don't really share this that often, but I'm going to share it with you. When I was seven years old, my appendix burst, and I was sent to the hospital for emergency surgery. I was one of seven children at the time, and ultimately I had a sister that was born after that, but when I say that I was one of seven children, it's kind of just drive home the idea that, you know, my mom and my dad had their hands full. And the idea of someone being up in the hospital was, you know, it threw a wrench into the day-to-day -day of everybody's life. But especially when the surgery was an emergency and it was kind of touch and go for a little while. I was in the hospital for about three weeks and 
the surgery at the time was pretty extensive. My scar is still pretty big. Um, but I remember that I was in a hospital and I was in the pediatric wing and they had a large ward kind of hospital beds. So there was a room and it had, you know, maybe, maybe 16 beds in it. Um, but I was the only one in, in the room and there was another one. So this was for girls. And then there was another one for boys. And there was a little boy who was in the boys ward. And they used to bring us together during the daytime. <laughs> and I remember because he was, um, he had broken his leg and he was in a hip cast. So he was laying kind of on his belly and he had this long cast that went and, um, he had been there for a while and he was a little bit more chipper than I was. And I, I was in a lot of pain while I, while I was there in the beginning, certainly. Um, but I was also scared and I had, I, I missed my mom and I missed my family and I was only like four miles away. Not, not probably, honestly, probably not even two miles away from my house, but I might've, might as well have been, you know, on the moon. And when he came in to visit me, they had come to change my IV and I, they, my IV was in my left arm and I was on this, this, it was on this like plaque and they had wrapped, uh, you know, wrapped the plaque to keep my arm steady, but I was bleeding a lot and there was blood coming out. So they were going to change it. And that's terrifying. Um, but this young man, this, this, uh, this boy who was probably right around my age, I don't think he could have been more than 10 years old, was there while they were changing it. And he just kept saying to me over and over, oh boy, that's gonna hurt, oh, that's gonna hurt, you're gonna bleed a lot, oh my goodness, that's gonna bleed, oh, it's bleeding, it's bleeding. And everything that he did just made the whole situation worse. Um, and I think back now on, on that and I think, wow, it, it's very funny to me. But at the time, you know, they brought him in thinking he would be a comfort and he just was, you know, he just, could not, he could not say things that weren't upsetting to me. Um, I actually only remember meeting him two or three times. So I don't think, I don't think he was still there for as long as I was, but I was there because my appendix had burst. And so there was some question as to whether or not, um, you know, whether or not the poison had gotten into my system or, you know, different things. And I had, you know, I got a lot of blood and, and, um, I was there for a while and it took me a while to get back on my feet to walk. And I remember because my mother and my father would rotate who was coming up. And my mom was so exhausted that most of the times that she was there, I was asleep and I would wake up and she would be asleep. And my dad would come because he, you know, he would always work very late, but my dad would come and I don't remember him saying five words, but he just, you know, he would come and he would sit with me. And I remember my brothers would come and visit and they were probably in their teens, but their friends would sneak in and say they were my brothers too. And there was just so many of us that they just were like, if you said you were a Kelly, you got in. Um, but I remember... The first night that I think I was conscious where I wasn't on any kind of pain medication and they weren't, you know, they weren't sedating me, I was in this ward all by myself. And there was, I may be overstating it, maybe there were 10 beds, but I remember it was just this big, 
empty, huge ward. And I was in the bed that was closest to the door. And, you know, a long way down to my right, there was this whole wall of windows. And I remember looking out and it was just this deep, deep, deep navy blue sky with these pinprick stars that were in it. And the sun, I mean, the moon must have been above the building because it was almost like it was glowing over the windows. And it was, it must have been fairly cold or chilly um, because I remember there being this soft kind of glow on the on the windows sills themselves, and I, and I think it was frost or condensation. And I just remember crying, and I, I wasn't I wasn't crying loudly. I wasn't bawling. I wasn't. It was just this kind of soft, sad cry because I missed my mom, and I I was feeling sorry for myself, and I was homesick, and I was scared, and I mean, I was seven years old, and I was awake in a big, empty room that scared me. And this woman walked in, and she was young. At the time, you know, I thought she was so a grown-up, and she was a grown-up. But when I think back now, she wasn't, I don't think she was more than 25 or 26 years old. And she was tall, and she came through the door, and she had that same kind of glow that I was seeing in the window, like the moon was above her or behind her and it was reflecting off of her. And I knew, even then, I felt there was something unusual about her. And she came over, and I had never seen her before. And you know, I'm a kid in in a pediatric ward. You get to know the nurses. You get to know them because they they want, especially you're the only, you're the only kid. There's one, one of two kids. You get to know them. They spend time with you. And I had never seen her before. And I remember she was pretty and she was, she had a, um, like a Dorothy Hamill cut. And for those of you who don't know what that is, Google it. Everybody had one. Um, and she actually wore one of those hats, one of those nursing hats and nobody else did. And she came in and everything about her was a soft glow. And she walked right over to me and she said, Oh, sweetie, it's okay. Go to sleep. Your mom will be here in the morning. And it was very comforting, and I was very grateful because it was almost like permission to be sad and permission to be scared, but that I was going to be okay. And then she leaned forward, and she put her hand on my cheek, and her hand was ice cold, like like a like an ice cube it was frozen and she just she rubbed my face and honestly I think I wet the bed I mean I think I got so startled by that that I that I that I got panicked but I don't remember anything until the next day and when I woke up and I still remember this my mom was sitting on the side of the bed and it was very early and it was an unusual time for her to be there. And she was leaning back with her, you know, she'll hate me for saying this, but with her mouth open and, and sleeping, probably because she hadn't, you know, she'd been running herself ragged. 
between me and my six brothers and sisters. She had on really, really red lipstick and a blue sweater. And when she saw me, she put her hand on my hand and it was the hand that had the IV in it. So she was very gentle. And my mom always does this thing. Um, she's not the most affectionate person on the planet, but she does this thing where she squeezes your hand twice very fast. And she did that to me. And she said, oh, my mother's Irish, so she has a thick brogue. She says, and she would call me Koch because in Gaelic, my name is Kochleen. And she'd say, oh, Koch, I couldn't sleep thinking about you last night. And then she came in to see me early. And I have to tell you, I, I, was, I was in that ward for another 10 days, and I never saw that nurse again. And even though she frightened me, she also comforted me. But I gotta tell you, there's still a part of me that absolutely believes that she was not of this world. And that she came in just at that moment and she comforted me the best way that she could. And I wonder how often those experiences get mistaken for contemporary experiences. You're half asleep, you're half awake, and someone comes in and a part of you just knows that they're not of this time. Those experiences get mistaken for contemporary experiences. You're half asleep, you're half awake, and someone comes in and a part of you just knows that they're not of this time. Thank you for listening to Paranormal Tower. Please follow us on Instagram at Paranormal Tower, on Facebook at Paranormal Tower, and on Twitter at ParanormalNJ. You can also support us by going over to Patreon, which is Patreon forward slash Paranormal, and for supporting us for as little as $2 a month. If you cannot afford $2 a month, that's perfectly okay. Please feel free to share us on your social media. And if you can, go give us a five-star review on iTunes or any of the other places that you may listen to your podcast. Download, listen, subscribe. All of that is a huge way of helping us. You can also share your stories at www.paranormaltower.com or by sending an email to mystory@paranormaltower.com. You can also give us a call at 732-737-9212, which is our My Story hotline. Hello, Paranormalists. Did you know that there is a real Paranormal Tower? And that it's located at 621 Cookman Avenue in Asbury Park, New Jersey's historic downtown district? Not only is there a real Paranormal Tower, there is a real Paranormal Archive and Occult Library. And when you send in your stories, or you call and you tell us your stories, they become part of that archive and library. And that means that your story becomes part of the continuing story of paranormal. And that means if you come to visit us, you'll be able to see your story and others, and also that other people will be able to hear your words and learn more about their world.